Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Defense Deconstructed on the CGAI Podcast Network. I'm your host and president of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute, Dave Perry. On today's show, which we're recording June 15th, 2023, you'll hear a conversation about how Canada can best align its anti-submarine warfare activities with those of our close allies, featuring Group Captain uh, Richard Berry from the uh, Royal Air Force and Commodore Michael Jacobson from the Royal Australian Navy. The conversation is moderated by our fellow and retired Vice Admiral Mark Norman. This event and this episode were made possible thanks to the support of the Department of National Defense's Mines Program, our strategic sponsors, Lockheed Martin Canada, General Dynamics, Irving Shipbuilding, and the event sponsors, BAE Systems, IMP Aerospace and Defense, CAE, C-SPAN, and Bombardier Defense. Before we get to the main segment of the show today, I'm happy to welcome back uh, Kate Todd, our CGAI Woods Fellow, to talk about what's been in the news in the last little bit. Thanks so much, Dave. Glad to be on again. So Kate, what are you tracking? So I have three things on uh, my radar today, and that's updates about the Ukrainian counteroffensive, the update that Ukraine has a new defense minister, and a report that was released by the Communication Security Establishment on August 28th about cybercrime in Canada. So what, uh, what are you paying attention to on the Ukrainian front here? So in Ukraine, uh, the U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, arrived in Kyiv for a surprise announcement. Uh, sorry. So in Ukraine, the U.S. Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, arrived in Kyiv for an unannounced visit on Wednesday, and he's expected to announce further U.S. assistance and assess the counteroffensive that's been going on for four months now, uh, but there have been reported gains. Uh, so this comes after Zelensky fired the Ukrainian Defense Minister Oleski Reznikov on September 3rd over corruption scandals, and those were involving military procurement. Talk a little bit more about the corruption scandal. It doesn't implicate uh, the minister himself, um, but this is there have been some issues lingering in, in Ukraine historically has had issues and, and problems in this area. Um, but what specifically is that issue that uh, came with uh, Reznikov's uh, removal and the installation of a new minister? Reznikov was seeing as failing to stamp out corruption in the department. A deputy minister and a head of procurement were dismissed in January after there were allegations that they inflated food contracts. And in August, there were new allegations that were involving the delivery of winter coats, whether they were actual windbreakers or winter coats. And the defense minister was saying that he would step down if there was another issue. So last month, there was also a issue where there were heads of regional military recruitment centers that were taking bribes from men that wanted to avoid being sent to the front lines. So these three things were sort of broiling in the background. And Reznikov ended up stepping down before the winter coat scandal uh, did conclude. Um, but he has been replaced by Runstem Umarov, who's headed the Ukrainian state property fund for the past year and is known to have negotiated with Russia and organized successful prisoner exchanges and to be a stand-up guy. He hasn't been accused of any corruption, embezzlement, or profiteering. So there's hope that he will be a uh, good replacement for the rest of the uh, foreseeable future with Ukraine's fight against Russia to reclaim their land. I think this is a really notable issue to, to pay attention to uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, one, the the management of this, obviously huge, huge amounts of material and, and money are flowing through uh, Ukraine and how that's being handled, whether or not it's being used effectively is a key issue. Um, you know, I think it hasn't been any allegation about Reznikov uh, personally, but there were these wider lingering issues. And I think confidence in the, in the Ukraine's use of funds and material, I think is uh, particularly important at a time when in the United States, 
They're basically running out of the uh, previous appropriation for an aid package, Republicans who control Congress um, and the Republican candidates to lead their party into the next uh, presidential elections. Uh, I think at a minimum, there's a degree of skepticism and, and if not some expressed outright support um, for lessening the uh, amount of Ukrainian assistance or maintaining the confidence in that, I think is a, is a key thing to watch. So that's a big move. Yeah, exactly. It seems like there have been reports out of the U.S. that they want to see results for the dollars that they have been sending over there. So the counteroffensive is in its fourth month now. And this weekend, there were reportedly advances uh, where light infantry, uh, Ukrainian light infantry, advanced beyond Russian defensive layers in the southern city of Zaporizhia. Uh, and also that land was taken back uh, around the city of Bakhmut. Um, but it'll be interesting to see if there can be any more advances uh, that Ukraine can um, undertake in the next few months. Okay, so what uh, what did you take from the Communication Security Establishment uh, Cyber Center's report? CSE's Cyber Center released a baseline cyber threat assessment, and that highlighted that there are threats of ransomware and cybercrime in Canada that pose a threat to Canada's national security and economic prosperity over the next two years. Apparently, cyber criminals will almost certainly target high-value organizations in critical infrastructure like hospitals and pipelines, and we've seen that happen over the past few years. In May 2021, there were ransomware attacks on the Colonial Pipeline in the U.S. that led to a shutdown and spikes in fuel prices. Uh, and in December 2022, there was also a ransomware attack on SickKids Hospital. So these attacks cost millions of dollars and threaten Canadian intellectual property and personal information. So this is a really important thing to look out for. I think a couple of things of interest in that, uh, to my mind, one is uh, that report was exposing some linkage with Canada's involvement in Ukraine, potentially putting um, Canada's uh, a target on Canada's back a little bit more uh, from Russia in particular, uh, which I think is something to, to be cognizant of, uh, and not just with, with Russia, but that type of activity increasingly being linked to uh, wider geopolitical uh, considerations. Um, I think it's also an interesting uh, a flag and a segue to a, another thing that I was tracking in the last little bit, um, a new report from the Business Council of Canada titled Economic Securities National Security, uh, which had specifically flagged these types of uh, malicious interventions in the Canadian economy uh, as something to, to be tracking um, and, and something that's problematic and needs more attention. Uh, but it's also uh, it's a pretty extensive report uh, and going to look to have a, a more detailed discussion on it later. But amongst other things, calling for uh, a revitalization of our policy around national security uh, writ large, drawing a, a concrete link uh, between our economy and various aspects of, of national security. And beyond that, I think uh, really interesting and useful to have people from another sector, the wider business community, um, paying a little more attention than uh, maybe has been expressed in the past to national security issues, which is great not just have those kinds of dis discussions be uh, siloed. So um, looking forward to digging into that in uh, a future episode in, in more detail, but uh, we'll uh, put a link in the show notes to folks and encourage people to take a look at that. Yeah, I think this report is really interesting and timely seeing as we've been talking more and more about foreign interference in Canada. Uh, and that sort of ties into economic security writ large, because when I think of economic security, I'm thinking foreign direct investment and ways that adversaries and whatnot can basically get into Canadian businesses and have access to uh, 
intellectual property or potentially our uh, defense industries and things like that. Uh, so I think it's um, great to see that there is uh, interest in the business community and uh, I'm looking forward to listening to the conversation later. Um, but is there anything else in the news that you've been tracking, Dave? One last thing, um, the CBC's David Common uh, is doing some first-hand reporting from the Indo-Pacific uh, on board some Canadian warships. Um, so check out some of his uh, uh, reporting uh, on the various places where you can catch uh, CBC. I think it's uh, do doing a really interesting job of, of highlighting some of the strategic and security interests that Canada has in the region um, and also explaining uh, some of what uh, the Canadian Navy is doing to implement um, the parts of the Indo-Pacific strategy calling for greater Canadian military naval activity and involvement specifically in the region. So check that out. Sounds great. Well, thank you so much for having me, Dave. We look forward to having you on again. Thanks, Kate. Take care. Is it good morning? What time of day is it over there? Uh, it's about five in the morning, so nice and early. You are a real gentleman. Thank you for doing that. And uh, congratulations, because your bio reflects you as a captain, and I see you're a Commodore, and that's, that's a good thing for you and the RAN. So thanks for joining us, and Rich, you here? So we're going to talk about allies. Uh, Dave said uh, we'd like to get things going. We're in a bit of a hurry. He didn't tell you why. Uh, the reason why is he's rejigged the program, and this panel is now standing between you, uh, both literally and figuratively, and the bar. So um, if that's not incentive uh, to not ask questions, I don't know what is. Um, <laughs> So I, I, will, uh, I will take on the burden of asking all the tough questions and, uh, and, and let's... Them as well, I hope. And, and, yeah, and answering, too. <laughs> sure, Rich, if, if you'd like. Um, so the last panel, uh, thankfully, uh, just touched on the subject of working with allies. And uh, to their credit, uh, they focused on the tactical dimension of that and how because it, it was actually here, and, and, and Blair, uh, I'll give you and your colleagues, Peter, the rest of you, full credit for having read my notes, which was that I wanted to say that I, I think we can accept for the purposes of the discussion that when you ask sailors and aviators and others to solve a problem tactically at sea or in the air or whatever the environment is, they get her done. And uh, they just sort it all out, they fix it, whether the tactics and the doctrine are completely aligned or not, their individual and collective ingenuity just gets things done. And so we're going to have our conversation this afternoon about allied uh, efforts and, and how we cooperate and, and where, where we're doing things well and not so well. We're going we're gonna to look at this more strategically, okay, rather than getting into the weeds of this procedure and that procedure and, and doctrine and everything else. We want to look at this from a national multinational and arguably institutional perspective. And so I, I've, I've asked the remaining panelists, so there's the first thing you learn about allies is, they're all there to help until they can't. Um, now, unfortunately, uh, Captain John had to leave, but he was in the panel earlier today, and he commented on his perspectives on some allied operations. So we should have a U.S. colleague here, and that's not a reflection on the U.S., it's a reflection on the fact that he has important work to do and he had to go home. So that's fine. But that's one of the many lessons, is that uh, they're there, but sometimes, you know, 
stuff happens and uh, they have to be somewhere else. And so that has to be managed. But I want to talk about capabilities, I want to talk about competence, and I want to talk about coordination as sort of three C's, if you will, of interoperability um, as we look at this. And, you know, as I look at these three C's, just quickly for context, I want to, I want to talk about, you know, coordination. We've heard um, extensively that this is a team sport. This is really probably one of the, the most complicated, multi-dimensional, multi-domain, uh, multi-platform, multi-nation uh, activities that, uh, that uh, credible and serious armed forces can engage in, um, and that, that's ASW. And uh, I already mentioned the fact that, you know, there's layers to this, but we're going to try and focus on coordination more at the strategic level rather than the tactical and operational level. The issue of competence, it got touched on in a couple of the panels earlier, so we, we don't necessarily have to get into a lot of that, but it is a key element of this, of this conversation and how um, individual nations build competence, how we share competence uh, amongst uh, our uh, key allies um, and develop it and then, and then, you know, and basically deploy it uh, as required. And capabilities, that's, everybody likes to focus on capabilities, uh, big shiny objects and, and things like that. Um, and, and, and this is sort of, if we could just keep in our minds the distinction between complementary capabilities and what I would describe as concentrated capabilities. So let, let me be more specific. Having more of the same stuff is not necessarily in and of itself useful. Um, having stuff that works together could in fact be more useful depending on the circumstance. And uh, those of you who've suffered through listening to me in the past uh, may have heard me use the analogy of the potluck barbecue. Um, and when you don't give specific direction to the attendees of the potluck barbecue and everybody shows up with macaroni salad, uh, it's a very filling meal, um, but it's not particularly satisfying in terms of, uh, you know, all the other expectations. So what we want to avoid is a whole bunch of macaroni salad and not enough ribs or chicken or steak or whatever. You, you follow me. Are you all awake? Can you hear me? Or what's going on here? All right. Um, some of you are looking at me like, who is this guy? Um, some of you know very well. Um, so my first question to our esteemed panelists is um, when we look at this in the context I've set it out, who sets the agenda? How do we collectively uh, establish the drumbeat for coordination, competence, and capability across the allies. Of course, if it's a NATO thing, there are mechanisms for that, but no, we, uh, we have other uh, relationships. Um, and so uh, I'm, I'm interested to hear your views. Rich, why don't you kick it off, and then, Mike, I'll ask you the same question. Okay, thanks, Admiral. Um, good afternoon, everybody. It's, uh, it's great to be here uh, and have the opportunity to uh, talk to you, particularly as a um, as an, as an aviator in a very, very maritime environment, but I do have a little bit of maritime background uh, operating our old maritime patrol aircraft. So uh, I, I've understood most of what's been talked about today. Um, I've also done a little bit of prep, which actually there's a bit that might be useful, despite the fact that we're kind of going off-piste a little bit with this. But um, 
I uh, had a look through our uh, integrated review, which we initially released in 2021, which set out the UK's strategic ambition for how we're going to um, build our, our, our world around us and, um, uh, and do our business. We refreshed that in 2023 uh, because the world changed quite a lot in 2022. Uh, so our Prime Minister thought it would be a good idea to, uh, to refresh it. And one of the lines that he did put in there was, um, unless democracies like ours do more to build our resilience and out-cooperate and out-compete those who are driving instability, the global security situation will deteriorate further uh, to the detriment of all states and peoples. So I think there's a really good thing in there, which gives me the hook to say, unless we out-cooperate our adversaries, which that's the green light for me to do everything I need to do, I think, uh, to do as much international cooperation as I can. My last job was um, as the program manager initially and then program director for our Poseidon P8 acquisition. Um, and early, early days in that one, we were working really closely with Norway. And my boss said to me, Rich, go away, cooperate with Norwegians, and proceed aggressively until apprehended. So that, again, was uh, carte blanche to go and cooperate with Norwegians. And we've now built a really, really strong uh, cooperative arrangement uh, with our Norwegian Air Force colleagues uh, around P8 uh, and with their Air Force. Um, the Germans uh, are buying P8 as well. They've seen what we're doing with the Norwegians, and they've come to us and said, can you do the same with us? Uh, and we'd love to, but we've just kind of spent all our time and effort uh, with our Norwegian allies, um, and we haven't got much left to give to, uh, to the Germans. But we'll do what we can, because um, part of that international cooperation, uh, particularly uh, in the UK at the moment, Post-Brexit, we're trying to build as many bridges back with our key allies as we possibly can in that particular uh, part of the world. Uh, but our focus is, is very definitely um, uh, Euro-Atlantic. Um, if you read further down the integrated review, uh, it talks about the Indo-Pacific and our Indo-Pacific tilt, but it's not very specific about that. So again, there is an opportunity within that government-level piece of strategy and policy that gives me the opportunity to do as much international cooperation as I can and hence when I got the opportunity to come here uh, for today I said to my boss can I go and do some international cooperation and he said yes you can Rich off you go. Well so really a couple good examples there Rich with respect to um, the, the a common problem if you will and this in the context of we need a new platform we need to um, figure out how we're going to how everybody's going to transition to a new multi-mission long-range uh, aircraft um, and so working together and cooperating and solving that piece of the problem. And uh, the, the statement that you extracted from the policy update, very interesting, out-cooperate, I think, is a, is a, is a really good uh, scene setter. So, so Mike, you're, you're, uh, you're obviously uh, in a tough part of the world down there, um, Submariner by background, if people haven't read your, uh, your bio. Um, how, what's your reaction to this? Uh, how, do we, how do we coordinate... You know the development of capability um, at the macro level. Uh. Yeah, uh, look, I think a lot of it's very similar. It's asking the right questions to start, and, and getting answers to the right question allows you to share a common problem and then collectively solve that problem. Uh, an example of the conversation we've heard today thus far is that is this an ASW problem? or an undersea warfare problem. Now, some of the language we use in Australia is a full spectrum undersea warfare. It's not just submarines, it's autonomous vehicles, it's mines, it's seabed, subsea activities. And so 
how we share a common language and a common problem allows us to collectively solve that in a way that's useful to everyone uh, once you share that common problem. This episode of Defence Deconstructed is brought to you by Irving Shipbuilding. Canada's national shipbuilder is currently hiring. For more information on the many jobs and opportunities currently available, please visit www.shipsforcanada.ca slash careers. Okay, well, I think uh, some in the audience would be disappointed if I didn't uh, broach the topic of AUKUS uh, as a concept <laughs> uh, and as, a, as an activity. But I think it's fair not to put words in your mouth, but um, is that what we could see as sort of an iconic demonstration of uh, coming together to solve a, a, a set of common problems? Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, and it's the, the, the common challenges we face. Uh, and you could say the same thing about the Quad Dialogue. Uh, you could say the same thing about ASEAN and our Pacific partners and our Pacific family we have. It's just another example of how we will come together to solve common challenges. With, with a, a more uh, focused uh, capability nexus, I guess, is that right? Uh, and, and, techn and technology sharing. Um, yeah, right. There's a combination between the two. Okay, all right. So in that context, and not just AUKUS, but if we look, you know, you described the uh, Euro-Atlantic perspective, and of course, um, you know, NATO is a big part, and it was mentioned in the previous panel, in terms of how... Um, doctrine is both developed and shared, um, whether it's the perfect solution to a particular situation or not, it is there, it does exist, and, and, uh, and, and it can be uh, referred to. I'm, just, I'm curious, um, as we're looking at the problem space that we've been discussing over the last uh, several hours, um, what, what are the things that we could legitimately say from an allied uh, interoperability and cooperation perspective that we are doing well uh, and uh, conversely what are the things that um, you know if we if we had the power to do so perhaps we would we would do better rich you got some thoughts on that uh, yeah I think um, I think we uh, we do a lot of thinking and a lot of analysis and you know today is evidence of, of that um, right right in front of our eyes that there's been a huge amount of thought gone into what today's discussion has been around um, and I know certainly from a UK perspective that the, the amount of analysis that um, the Royal Navy is doing as far as the lead uh, service for the UK uh, in the North Atlantic under its um, operational advantage in the North Atlantic, the Oana uh, activity, some really good stuff that's coming into that. Um, what we do is lots of good thinking, what we haven't done is turn that thinking into investment decisions uh, and funding um, uh, sort of consequences. So, so there's, there's, that's one of the areas where you know, we do some good thinking that hasn't necessarily turned out as we would want it just yet. Um, but I think the, you know, the, the history that I've got in the maritime patrol uh, world operating so closely with Australia, New Zealand, Canada and the US is that we develop a community uh, of operators who understand each other, who are familiar with each other and you know, even, we even make friends with each other uh, and drink beer with each other, which is a great way of, of cementing relationships. And that came through uh, really good for us back in uh, 2010 when we got rid of our Nimrod, our previous maritime patrol aircraft. Um, and with a view to something positive happening in the future, 
we sent 40 maritime operators out to the Air Forces and the US Navy in Australia, New Zealand, uh, Canada, and, and, the, and the US under a SeaCorn project. Uh, they went out with no certain future as to what, uh, what was going to happen, but in 2015, the decision was made for us to buy the P-8, um, and having that seed corn uh, of people that we then drew back into the, uh, into the Royal Air Force has allowed us to go from a standing start after a significant capability holiday, as we like to call it, um, to, uh, to an initial operating capability in a really, really short time. And we couldn't have done that without having that really strong relationship at all the right levels uh, with our close allies. So I think we've done that really well. Uh, you know, and, and if there are opportunities for the UK to, uh, uh, to repay that, uh, that debt to our allies, then you know, we're really keen to do that. Interesting. So you know, that, that goes to the issue of uh, maintaining and building c competence uh, across, uh, across the allies and sharing, yeah. sharing that information or sharing that competence uh, within the community. I think that's a, that's a really important point because it, uh, it's perhaps um, uh, less technical and, and less material uh, to those uh, uninformed observers who yeah. might be looking at things without a really uh, good understanding of what goes on uh, behind the scenes. And what about uh, things that we could perhaps do better? Have you got any thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, Unofficially, uh, uh, of course, <laughs> it's all off the record. Uh -huh. um. So, so what, what can we do better? Uh, I mean, you know, when it comes to um, operating in, uh, in, the, in the environments that we're talking about, you know, we've, I, I made a list. I think we've ticked off most of those as we go through the discussion uh, today. But, you know, operating in contested environments uh, with, our, with our maritime assets, you know, if we're talking anti-access and area denial, we've probably got a long way to go in terms of making sure that we've got the self-protection equipment on the, on the platforms that we need so we can operate safely. Or we develop those concepts where we're operating with you know, the sort of F-35 fifth gen up threat, or we're putting our um, remotely piloted systems up threat. And I don't think we've done that thinking enough, developed those conops uh, as, as, as well as we could have done. Um, high North stuff, certainly for the UK, we've got an aspiration to do more in the High North, but I don't think we really understand the, the, um, uh, the challenges of operating in that kind of environment with those distances, you know, without the, the access to those kind of uh, geosynchronous satellites that we need for the navigation and communications that we're so reliant on. Um, and, and resilience as well is another area where, you know, we look at what we've got now. We've got some really good kit, but we've got very small fleets of really good kit. So what happens when we lose one or two of those assets or when we lose one or two of those operating bases when we've only got one or two of those operating bases? So I think we need to do an awful lot more in terms of developing our resilience and our ability to absorb day one of the war, disperse, hunker down, whatever it might be, so that we can survive to fight back on day two, three, four, uh, et cetera. So some of the things I think that um, we certainly spend a lot of time scratching our, our chins about. All right, that's good. And I think, although I, had, I stepped out earlier, I'm not sure that resilience really got a lot of attention. Uh, and I, I think that's a, really, that's a really good one because, of course, Resilience, like many other characteristics, spans the tactical, operational, and strategic, and it has, it has different meanings at those levels. So, Mike, over to you at the high north uh, Indonesia, I guess, in your context, but uh, <laughs> um, has a different view up here. Got some thoughts on yeah. those two questions? Yeah, look, I think something that um, in Australia we sort of you know, think about is we can't surge trust. 
trust is something that needs to be done with partners beforehand because when you need it, if it's not there, you're not going to get it. Um, and so how is it that we work with our partners uh, in a way that we can show trust and gain trust ahead of time so when it's really needed, it's there and we have that shared understanding? Um, you know, with our, our partners, um, with our Five Eyes partners, that's a, a deep engagement we've had for, for decades and, and it's on the backs of that. Um, as we look at some of our more modern and pressing challenges, you know, the partners that we may need may be, um, you know, uh, different or, or, you know, we haven't necessarily worked with them in, in time. You know, you've got people, uh, you know, countries such as Japan, South Korea, um, you know, these are, are countries we've had deep engagements for, for for many years, but in different contexts. Um, Indonesia is another example. Uh, and so how do we collectively work with uh, these security partners, which we've had different relationships with, so the trust is there. And I think we're starting to really build that uh, and, you know, more work to be done uh, as we move forward. But I think we're heading in the right direction. Uh, challenges. Um, and I, I think I'm thinking it slightly from a broader uh, strategic level in that as we try to work uh, with our partnerships, you know, military to military level uh, with Canada, the US, we've worked for decades, we have deep understanding. And I could literally take an Australian submariner or an Australian aviator or one of our surface warfare officers and put them on any one of those assets uh, with the exception of maybe a bilingual French asset and they would work uh, exceptionally seamlessly um, and it would just be no problem. You know, it's difficult to pick up Australian industry and put it into Canada, take Canada industry, put it somewhere else. Uh, and how is it that we have a partnership which is not just a military partnership, but we've got these military industrial bases that we need to make sure we work. And there's lots of conversations around business model, intellectual property, and sure, this is the military guy talking about how we do um, you know, cooperation, collaboration, but we need to think beyond just the effectors themselves once they're in service. That's great. Thanks, Mike. And um, the, the last sort of uh, question that I was thinking is perhaps unfair, so I'm going to kind of reframe it. I, I don't think it's fair for uh, a retired officer to ask two serving officers if they were to provide advice to Canada, what would it look like? Um, but uh, perhaps there are some lessons learned that you could share with us in the context of um, it, the, your institutional experiences, either onboarding new capability or um, you know, wrestling with some of these issues. Um, you know, to your point earlier, Mike, about um, that we, we mentioned AUKUS, we don't have to talk about AUKUS, but you know, there's, there's a lot going on, and I know it's being shared, but um, are there things that, uh, in particular, uh, Canada could learn um, from your own national experiences? And Mike, I'm going to ask you first, and then Rich, I'll go to you. Yeah, so I think um, our view is that the best way to be a contributor is have a viable standalone sovereign capability, which is designed interchangeable and interoperable by design. Now, if we can do that ourselves and prove that, then we can go and help others and contribute in a way that is going to work regardless. Now, there's a lot of 
detail in that statement. And if you were to pull that apart, there's lots of challenges with almost every element of that. Um, you know, and it can only function if you're you know, interacting early with the partners. Because there's no point me designing something which I think is interchangeable unless we've already got common standard shared problems, um, you know, and how do, am I going to you know, sustain that in, in an enduring way, particularly if it's forward deployed. Okay, Laura, see, you triggered uh, something, Mike, and I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about your background. And for those who haven't read his bio, Mike, uh, Mike was sentenced to uh, three and a half years uh, service in Canada um, earlier in his career. And so I'd like to read back what I heard you say in a perhaps more Canadian context, given the discussions we've had today, as an example. So if, for example, uh, Canada was able to develop and field a robust set of undersea warfare capabilities to help defend the North American continent in cooperation with our primary ally, those kinds of capabilities would be very useful uh, if and when we have to go farther afield to work with other allies that don't share the same continent with us. Would that be a fair statement? If the, the requirements set on those, um, that they were interchangeable and interoperable by design with the allied architecture, 100% so. And so that's a key takeaway, just to... You have to deal with those issues from the outset to make sure they're explicit so that people aren't operating on uh, assumptions or, or preconceived ideas, right? A hundred percent. And it's one of those things where if you have that designed or baked in to start, the cost of bringing that later on is marginal, if anything. But if you wanted to change the requirements in those capabilities later, you know, that is not an insignificant cost you would need to bear. Right on. Okay, Rich, Thanks. some thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I think um, in terms of, you know, sharing experiences that we've, uh, that we've learned over the, uh, over the last few years, I think a key bit is around um, uh, whatever capabilities you want has to be credible and, and lethal. You know, when we're talking about a deterrent effect of what we're buying, what we're operating, if it doesn't have that credibility and lethality, then we might as well not do it. Uh, and that, you know, that comes to how often you operate it, how competent you are at operating it, um, what weapons fit you, you decide to integrate onto your platforms or you buy for your platforms. I think that's a, that's a key element and, and that's something that, that we're learning a lot at the moment. Um, the other one I think is um, around uh, where are you willing to compromise uh, in that sort of performance cost time envelope because you can have all the performance in the world if you want it but it might take a long time and it'll cost you a lot of money. Um, and similarly, as you move around through the triangle, you've just got to make sure that, um, you know, in terms of ministerial decisions about what you're buying, when you're buying it, and how you're buying it, everybody understands where you've made the compromises. Because, you know, when it comes to three, four, five years downstream, and you look at the business case and you said, you said it was going to do this, and then you, you say, yes, but since then we've made a compromise in this area and we can't do that. So it's just making sure, I think, that everybody understands what that compromise position is because it's always going to be a compromise between those, uh, those three directions. And I think my final one is around, um, around people, and that's the pressure that we're feeling really keenly at the moment 
um, in, the, uh, in the UK, but particularly in the Royal Air Force, is that uh, we've got loads of people who want to join the Royal Air Force now and fly and operate really, really good bits of equipment. Um, and they're coming through the door, we're recruiting them. But when Congratulations. We thank you, thank you. <laughs> that in and of itself is an enormous accomplishment. <laughs> Which it is, and it's brilliant. And, uh, but what we can't do is retain them. When we've trained them to a point where they're really useful and they become instructors and supervisors, uh, we're struggling to retain those people. And I think that's the, the difficulty that we've got at the moment, is, is how do we get through that problem where we've got lots of people at the beginning of their careers who are inexperienced and need training and need supervising and need qualifying. But the bit in the middle where we need those people to train the youngsters, we just can't keep hold of them right now. We're particularly feeling it in, um, uh, in the maintenance and engineering space where we're buying stuff and we can't exploit them to the maximum capability that we need to because we can't engineer and maintain them uh, at that same rate of effort. Uh, so that's a key bit. I think that's a, a really significant point, uh, Rich, and I know it came up uh, briefly in a couple of the other panels. In fact, there was a question, Bill, you asked about the competence and maintaining. Um, yeah, so that, that, is a, that is a significant challenge. And the, well, inst the instant answer is, well, we just buy it in. You know, we buy yeah, in maintenance capability. But it's a fixed, it's a, it's a fixed volume system, right? It so, is. Um, Industry recruits then from the Air Force, and we lose exactly. more people. So, you know, where do we go? Dirty industry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that exhausts my questions. That's the best I can do. Uh, you got, we've got 11 minutes and 12 seconds left. Fantastic. Oh, Dave. Well, let me open it up to questions before you jump up. Clearly, Dave has a remote question. So would you like to go first, uh, Dr. Perry? No, that's Peter. Okay. Peter Bates, I'm a fellow here at the Institute. My question is, we, this is very much um, focused within the Anglosphere, Five Eyes, AUKUS, Canada, US, UK, Australia, New Zealand. I'd be interested in your perspectives on the challenges and opportunities of wider partnerships. You mentioned Germany, Japan, uh, Italy, Spain, France, and others. Do you want both of them to comment? Please. Yeah, okay. Mike, why don't you go first? Because you, you had a couple of good examples there in your previous yeah. comments. So I would say 100% um, Australia is, um, I, I guess, deeply involved uh, yeah, with the Quad, um, yeah, with Japan and India yeah, involved in that. Uh, ASEAN and you know, our partners inside the, uh, the Pacific family, uh, we're 100% in and, and they are vital, we think, to the collective good. Um, and we just see that continuing. Uh, I'll just think if you after specific examples or um, just a, a really clear acknowledgement that, that yes, yeah, we'll be increasing significantly through that. Rich? Yeah. Um, it's, uh, again, my government is really keen to make sure that we cooperate um, uh, with, with as many countries as the UK has interest in. Uh, and, and they may be the core kind of Five Eyes nations, but there's an awful lot more uh, diverse relationships, you know, whether that's a European-based thing with, with close neighbours uh, or whether that's, uh, that's further afield with, um, with, with other countries where the UK wants to uh, develop relationships and uh, potentially gain some influence in terms of how, um, how the UK does its business overseas. Uh, so um, the, you know, the, the military instrument is a, is a really good way of, of building those relationships. And you know, because we're the kind of people who are out, outgoing and we want to go and build friendships and you know, learn from each other and, uh, 
uh, and exercise together, uh, it, it gives us some really key opportunities to, uh, to spread our wings and, and go further afield. We might not necessarily have the capabilities to, you know, to go and spend long time uh, overseas in other nations, but it's certainly something that uh, you know, we're, we're really keen to, to do. I think, uh, I think none of us can afford to uh, ignore any potential partners going forward. I go back to the opening comment you made with respect to your government's recent review to out-cooperate, I believe was the yep. language. Yeah. So, um, you know, it, it is, a, it is a, an unfortunate reflection of the situation we find ourselves in where, whether we like it or not, uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, mm. uh, as the old maxim goes. And uh, a lot of the ability to interoperate amongst those non-traditional allies or friends has been some of the technical and mechanical restrictions that we heard in an earlier panel related to security and disclosure and all these kinds of things. And, and I think that as we become uh, increasingly convinced of the need to expand those friendships and partnerships, hopefully um, those barriers, which are, um, to be honest, somewhat arbitrarily imposed, uh, will we'll start to break down. But that's, that's my unsolicited, you didn't ask for my opinion, I'm gonna give it to you anyway, so there you go. Uh, next question, please. Uh, okay, so I think this is for uh, Mike. If uh, Admiral Ron tried to help me uh, navigate some uh, acronyms here, is if, if SQEP would re resonate with you as suitably qualified and experienced personnel in the context of AUXIS and sailing with the Virginia class? Sorry, I'm trying to navigate a lengthy question that was mostly acronyms. Uh, can you maybe talk a little bit about that and then maybe is there something for Canada which is not in the position of having an, to turn people away out of an abundance of applicants? Um, is that potentially a model that you might recommend that we pursue? Uh, with regards to uh, a, a nuclear-powered submarine or with the process of generating SQUIP across a broader range of activities? Yeah, probably the latter, not the nuclear part. And first yeah, of all... Okay, good. Can we, just, can we just unpack the acronym for everybody, please? First of all, Mike, would you do that? For me, because I don't know what the hell you're talking about. Uh, you qualified experienced personnel. So just in other words, they know what they're doing. They've been certified and qualified to do whatever it is. Um, and I think this sort of Square. ties down in a way um, with uh, how we're talking about with our a UK friend about putting people overseas to embed with capabilities to bring home experience uh, and as well as we had in the last panel about how we might think about um, in the uh, Canadian patrol submarine program do we go and put people abroad and bring them back in and I think it's really important if you highlight the things you need to get uh, what are the gaps in your current system that you'll need to execute uh, whatever that capability is it's not cheap uh, however the quality of the product is usually good if it's planned well yeah, nothing really to add. Ditto? Ditto, yeah, okay. absolutely. Squep is key, and it ties to that kind of, that's the people in the middle that are missing that we need to grow and retain, and that's the, that's the challenge that we've got. And it's, it is a, it's a shared challenge, interestingly, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah. Okay, any other questions? We have uh, five minutes and 20 seconds left. Bob? I heard the clinking of gin bottles over there. That wasn't me. <laughs> Um, I'll ask a, uh, maybe a little bit of a tougher question. Um, 
In my view, uh, with allies, you sort of start with cooperation, and then you build trust, and then maybe it evolves into reliance. Um, as I look at AUKUS, that one looks like it's actually managed to get all the way to reliance. But as I think back to some of the missions that I've done in the past, um, like in the Arabian Sea, I remember the day I wanted a maritime patrol aircraft because I was trying to cover millions of square miles and I didn't have uh, an air asset assigned that day and I just didn't have enough ships. And I asked my American uh, colleague who was doing the air battle, "Can I, I need one, please. What can you do? And he said, well, we're really kind of busy right now and it's a pity you didn't bring one with you, isn't it? Um, which was a bit of a tongue-in-cheek answer. But it taught me a huge lesson on the reliance end, which is that you can't always rely uh, on, on your ally, not necessarily because, in, in many areas we can, but sometimes for something specific, you can't rely on your ally because they have other priorities uh, or there's a whole range of reasons. It's not because they don't want to. They have to You've go got, catch a flight. They've got, they've got cooperation. <laughs> They've got trust, but they just they just can't do it. So so I guess the reliance part is the hardest part. And as we are looking for, you know, we kind of started this conversation on on uh, broad range capabilities. Canada, you know how much we're struggle, struggling on trying to fill all the bins with stuff with our budget. Is there anything from your perspective, maybe this is more a question for Australia, but is there anything that you're prepared to give up if you have to um, uh, and not have in your own basket of capabilities to achieve this kind of level of reliance that everybody talks about? So we always talk about it, reaching a point where we can all rely on each other and, and maybe we bring one capability and you bring another, like the barbecue, but I'll tell you, if I want uh, if I want macaroni at the barbecue, I'm going to bring it because I may not find it otherwise, and that's why you end up with everybody having macaroni. Is there a, is there a, a solution here? Yeah. Well, look, um, I, I think I'll respond uh, on that, and it's a it's an interesting uh, topic that's um, actually very topical in Australia. Uh, in as, in response to the current uh, defence strategic review. Uh, and the government's response to that is we're switching from a, you know, I guess a balanced force to a focus force. Um, and as a part of that, you know, there is, you know, much uh, work at the moment to work out what are those things we're giving up right now to achieve both a sovereign capability brick that we can, you know, you know give and offer it as an interchangeable activity. And, and what are we going to give away that was a part of that balanced force that we need to actually fund and resource that focused force. And so we're doing that right now. And, you know, we're continuing to, to do that. You'll see elements of that in the DSR, the Defence Strategic Review we've released, and there's more work to be done uh, between now and the end of the year. Mike, you're speaking with some confidence in that regard, and I appreciate your, your, uh, your comment because uh, my sense, uh, instinctively, and I'm not going to put you on the spot, um, my sense is that you're able to have those conversations because you have a fairly robust and mature framework within the machinery of government 
to have them. It, it, and I am asking, you can nod one way or the other. A couple of your, couple of your country colleagues are giggling here in the room. Um, is yeah. that a... And I'd say we're having a, a very honest and um, yeah, supported conversation with government. Um, and government has been extremely engaged um, over the last you know, 12, 18 months over this exact issue. Uh, and they continue to remain engaged as we, you know, we collectively solve the problem. Okay, well, uh, thanks. I just got the hook from Perry, so uh, I do listen to him on occasion. There he is standing up. Uh, thank you, Mike. Uh, I guess we're going to go drink, and you can grab yourself a coffee and start the day. Uh, thanks for joining us so early in your day. We really do appreciate it, and uh, we, we wish you all the best, and, and really do appreciate your friendship uh, and your support um, as an ally in a, a like-minded nation in a tough neighborhood. So thank you very much. My pleasure. I, I didn't get a chance to thank him. Rich came all this way across the pond, and uh, you know he was prepared for a discussion that never materialized because <laughs> I pulled the rug out from underneath him. So big round of applause to Rich thank you. for uh, thank you. his agility. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode of Defense Deconstructed, part of the CGAI Podcast Network. If you like the show, please remember to rate us and leave a comment on your podcast app. And if you like your stuff, please feel free to check out our donation page at cgaica support. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. The podcast is brought to you by our team in Ottawa, and thanks go to our producer, Charlotte Duval-Antoine, and Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Dave Perry, and thanks for listening to this episode of Defense Deconstructed. <laughs>